0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 142, Preparing for Mars. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. We have nearly 20 years of continuous human presence on the International Space Station. That's nearly 20 years of studying the human body, understanding systems, and fine-tuning operations for how to conduct human spaceflight missions, not to mention the decades of human spaceflight missions and experience before that. A lot has changed over time based on what we've learned, and a lot of questions have come up that are important to understanding how things will change when traveling to Mars. You might think, that's a lot of experience already, so why don't we just go to Mars? It's hard to imagine just how hard Mars is. It requires near absolute perfection, and any deviation may be a risk to the safety of the humans on board or the success of the mission. So the question is, are we ready? You could even ask, how ready are we? Luckily, we have an organization right here at the NASA Johnson Space Center and all across the agency looking at what we have and what we need to make a Mars mission successful. Michelle Rucker is a Mars integration lead at Johnson Space Center for the Mars Integration Group, A team that spans across all of NASA. She's a 33 year veteran of NASA, joining in the aftermath of the uh, Space Shuttle Challenger accident and supporting the investigation by conducting booster material tests and analysis. She has participated in a range of exciting projects, such as the International Space Station Environmental Control and Life Support Systems, Hypervelocity Impact Research, Spacesuit and Space Walking Tools, Space Station Exercise Equipment, System Engineering, and Orion Crew Exploration Vehicle Testing and Verification. She currently leads the Mars Integration Group, developing crewed, uh, Mars Mission Concepts. She holds two U.S. patents and has authored numerous technical publications. So on today's podcast, Michelle goes over the details of what we know, what we have, what we need, and how NASA's Artemis program uh, that will establish sustainable human presence on the moon will help inform and fine-tune the ideal mission structure for a Mars mission. And I hope you like this topic, because there's going to be a lot more. This month kicks off monthly episodes that are all about a Mars mission, and we'll call it uh, Mars Monthly. Over the next few months, or maybe even the next year, we'll dive deep into the various elements we discussed today with Michelle. So, here we go. Preparing for a human mission to Mars with Michelle Rucker. Enjoy.
1: T-minus five seconds, counting. Mark. There she goes. We have
0: a podcast. Michelle Rucker, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. So this is an interesting topic. I'm really excited to talk about how we're preparing for Mars. There's a lot to consider, and it seems like it's a pretty small group doing it. I want to get a little bit of sense of your background, though, to understand what has to go into the people that are actively thinking about what we need for Mars. What's your background?
2: So uh, I was born in Alaska. uh, So extreme environments don't scare me. So that's probably (laughs) the first requirement for for thinking about Mars. Um, I went to school here in Houston at Rice University. Uh, I've got a couple engineering degrees in mechanical engineering. Um, I started my career at the White Sands Test Facility in New Mexico. Oh, right um, at NASA. With NASA, yeah. Um, If you're not familiar with White Sands, we do all the fun hazardous testing stuff out there Uh, so that means blowing stuff up and setting it on fire and shooting micrometeorites at it Uh, so I spent the first part of my career trying to destroy spacecraft Um, but at some point you you get tired of that and you want to start creating Uh, so I transferred here to Johnson uh, worked on the space station with the the life support systems Uh, I did stints with the exercise equipment that was that was one of the funnest jobs I did Um, I uh, also worked uh, the constellation program for both the uh, Altair project and the Orion project. And then uh, when the constellation program wound down, uh, I started doing exploration for the first time. So I'm relatively new compared to some of the folks who've been working, about, uh, working on Mars for years now. Um, I've only been doing Mars work for maybe the last eight or nine years.
0: That's still significant, but I think what's important is you have a you have that breadth of experience. You did a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Space station's really important. That's, we're going to fold that into today's story mm-hmm. a little bit. So I think that's that's a really good background to have. Now, you say you're new, but eight or nine experiences. That's yeah. eight, eight, or nine, <laughs> eight or nine years. That's a, a lot of experience to me. Um, so just from what you've learned in your eight or nine years, thinking even just all the way back, actually, to when we first started here at NASA thinking about Mars missions, and what we need from Mars missions, what were we thinking about? So uh, Mars
2: missions are—the are history within NASA is sort of interesting. Um, only a few weeks after the Apollo 11 landing, uh, Werner von Braun put together a proposal for a Mars mission, essentially taking the, the lunar hardware that he'd just developed successfully for the moon— and supersizing it and going to Mars. Hmm. Um, so that was a, that was an initial proposal uh, at the time. The agency uh, was focused on the Moon when the when the Apollo program wound down. Uh, NASA focused a little bit more on on low Earth orbit. So the shuttle and the station era, we were a little bit closer to home. Uh, but even during that period, there was a a, a small office, uh, both here at Johnson Space Center and across the agency. There were there were uh, small groups working on some of the Mars technologies, thinking about some of the mission concepts. Um, To me, Mars is a system engineering problem as much as anything. Hmm. Um, We know how to do most of the individual pieces. It's how do you put it all together into a single mission concept to be successful.
0: I see. And that's where some of the work you're doing is coming in. It's it's taking all those separate pieces and, and thinking about them and actively putting them into what we're thinking about now, what the... What resources and technologies we have now but thinking just you know further ahead and way further out
2: yes so <laughs> so taking the technologies we have uh, looking at whether we need to supplement those with new technologies uh, do we need to extend the technologies a little bit more uh, Think about operations um, uh, operations have changed a lot over the years now uh, we've got the commercial players involved and mm. that's an exciting new development uh, so, so things have become a little bit more streamlined. Uh, some of the things, uh, the, the way we did business, um, even for procurements, uh, back in the shuttle and station days, we're we're developing new and faster techniques for doing uh, procurements. So that's that's exciting as well.
0: Hmm. Okay, so let's go right into it. Thinking about those challenges for Mars, the things that are going through your brain all the time. What are we thinking about when it comes to what's what to do, what to integrate? Uh, into a Mars mission?
2: So what's interesting about about human spaceflight is the entirety of human spaceflight has literally revolved around the Earth. Um, everything that we did with the moon, moon revolves around the Earth. Um, everything we did with the, the space station, with shuttle, we all, it was all revolving around the Earth. In order to get to Mars, we have to change our coordinate frame of reference. We have to start thinking about revolving around the sun. So first we have to chase Mars around the sun to catch it. And then once we get there, Earth wasn't where we left it, so we've got to chase Earth back around the sun to get home again. So it's a it's a it's a bigger scope problem than the the types of missions that we've been focused on. So the challenges I like to break into really sort of three pieces. There's the getting there, the living there, and the coming home. So you ready to step through the let's do the it pieces? Right. <laughs> so the getting there. So the, the uh, trajectory guys like to say that it's 2,000 times farther. and That's like the odometer reading to get to Mars and back versus trying to get to the moon and back. Um, and that, again, that's because both Earth and, and Mars are moving. So it's not just a straight line there, a straight line back. You've got to chase these planets around the sun. Uh, so, so 2,000 times farther than, than the moon. It only took us a few days to get to the moon. You can go to the moon and back in a week. Uh, to get to Mars and back, that is, that is, that's a little bit different. Um, how long it takes, the transit time, is a function of when you go, where the planets are relative to each other at the time that you leave, and what kind of ride you're riding in. Um, but typically we're talking two- to three-year mission durations. So that's a much longer mission duration than the types, even, even the longest expeditions we've done on Space Station uh, to date. It's only been a year. Uh, So these are very long missions that we're looking at. So long-duration mission means you need a lot of stuff. You need a lot of food. You need a lot of oxygen. You need a lot of spare parts, a lot of uh, consumable parts. Um, And that means we need to launch a lot of stuff from Earth or we need to figure out a way to either make it or find it somewhere, either at our destination or, or on the way. Once we get to Mars orbit, we'll need to land... A fairly large payload. To date, the largest thing we've landed on Mars is the Curiosity rover. That's about one metric ton. The smallest human-rated vehicles we've we've been able to squeeze. We're looking at crews of maybe four people. A crew of four is still probably going to require about a 20-ton, 20 20-metric-ton 20 lander. So that's 20 times Ooh. as big as anything we've landed previously, and. Um, Unlike Earth, Mars doesn't have a, a, a nice thick atmosphere where we can use it to, to help slow down. So, so our entry, descent, and landing is challenging. Uh, the other problem with Mars is uh, global dust storms. You may have read about the Opportunity rover, um, um. unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> met with, with a tragic end with the, the dust storm in 2018, I believe. Um, so dust storms can obscure the landing site. So that's another thing. We need technologies that would be able to deal with that. Uh, or we need to plan, have good weather prediction and be able to plan around dust storms. So once you once you get there and land, then they're still living there. So in some ways, Mars is a lot like home. There's a, a day-night cycle on Mars. Uh, a day is a little bit longer on Mars. It's about uh, 24 hours and 37 minutes. Um, it's got mountains. It's got valleys. Um, I've seen photos that the rovers have taken, and it looks just like the, the desert southwest in some places. So it, lots of beautiful vistas. Wow. Um, it has seasons. So a, a Martian year is, is about twice as long as an Earth year, um, but it does have seasons. On a balmy summer day, it can be as warm as 80 degrees. So wow. in some ways, Mars is attractive because it seems hospitable. It's also exotic. It's got two moons, Phobos and Deimos. Um, if you're into Greek mythology, they were the uh, twin sons of Aries, I believe. Um, they're itty-bitty moons, but uh, I've always thought it was kind of cool that if you were sitting on the Martian surface looking up at the night sky, the moons, moons cross each other um, in orbit, which is kind of cool.
0: Wow, that would be a sight.
2: That would be pretty neat, yeah. Uh, but Mars is also challenging, so it's got reduced gravity. Uh, humans are, are, are used to 1G on uh, Mars is reduced. If you weighed 100 pounds on Earth, you'd only weigh about 38 pounds on Mars. But because there is gravity, the challenge is that carrying around a big, heavy spacesuit becomes more problematic. We never worried about that too much in the ISS days because with microgravity, a big, bulky spacesuit wasn't really a problem. Um, but on ISS, you don't really walk. You use your hands to translate around. Uh, so, so our spacesuits will need to be redesigned for a planetary surface. Once you get on the surface, humans are going to need a lot of power. Got to upload those selfies, right? (laughs) Um, Got life support, communication, mobility, um, whatever science we're going to do on the surface. So we'll probably need a lot of power. Um, The conventional wisdom is, well, we're in space. We just use solar. Um, But Mars is a little bit further from the sun than Earth is. So there's, there's a reduced solar energy there. The other problem is the dust storms. The dust storm, that's what happened with Opportunity. Mm -hmm. Uh, The dust storm knocked out the uh, solar energy, and poor Opportunity didn't make it. So we we need to look at some alternative sources for power. And it can get cold uh, in some places in some seasons, Uh, so, so it's a pretty extreme environment. So now if we finished up our mission on Mars, ready to come home, Um, all of the Mars missions to date, all of our robotic missions, have been one-way affairs. We've never actually tried to launch anything from Mars. So Mars does have a lower gravity, so getting something off the surface of Mars would be easier than getting something off the surface of of Earth. But we still estimate about 7 kilograms of propellant for every 1 kilogram of of mass we're trying to get into orbit. Um, Each crew member is going to be, you know, maybe 100 kilograms. So hmm. you're talking about a lot of propellant. Um, we've estimated up to 38 metric tons for uh, four crew with science equipment and their EVA suits and so on. So that begs the question of do we bring all that propellant from Earth and then try to land it, um, or do we figure out a way to make propellant there? Those are some interesting questions. Once you get back into space, get in your deep space transport, come back to Earth, you've got the, the Earth reentry problem. You, you, it's about 11 kilometer per second uh, reentry back into Earth. That's what Orion, that's the, the challenge Orion was, was designed to overcome. Uh, so so those are the challenges. Yeah. And all of those taken together could be daunting if you were trying to start from scratch to solve all those challenges. Um, but the cool thing about what NASA's been doing over ever since von Braun first proposed Mars is we've been whittling away at these challenges piece by piece So we don't have to start from scratch. A lot of the uh, projects that you may have heard about recently, Artemis, the human landing system, Mm -hmm. the gateway, uh, plus ISS, shuttle experience, uh, some of the EVA suit development work that's been going on, all of that will contribute to helping us solve some of these challenges. That's significant.
0: That's a lot of consideration. I mean, that was what you just described right there, that little packet, was... The whole Was the Mars mission? It was getting there. It was living there. It was coming back. It was in those three those three sections. And it's I'm I'm smiling over here. You can't see it because we're on the podcast. I'm smiling, but you, I mean it, you make it sound like and and that's it. And that's what we need to do. But I know it's so hard. There's a lot of challenges that are associated with this, um, um, in terms of what we're investigating. Let's kind of dive a little bit deeper into some of these challenges starting with getting there I, I pulled out a couple key elements um, and and while w- as you were going there you know you're like oh that's a challenge but I know it's like it, it's a really big challenge so one of them was just distance just being far away is just makes everything so much more complicated because with being far away comes you have communication delays uh, you're talking about uh, a significant amount of uh, energy to get there a significant amount of time to get there. And then the positions, like you did mention this, the positions of Mars and Earth have to be in such a way that meet the requirements to actually go catch up with Mars. That's all very significant things.
2: It's pretty astonishing that there are smart guys who can calculate precisely where Earth and Mars will be at any given instant in time with such phenomenal accuracy. It, It... It still amazes me. Um, We actually rely on, uh, we've got a team here at Johnson, the Maya team that does a lot of trajectory analysis. We also use uh, some folks at Langley Research Center that do trajectory analysis. And uh, also we've got some team members at uh, the Glenn Research Center that Mm -hmm. that help us with that. Um, So yeah, we we spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly who's where, when. (laughs) um, On ISS, if you run out of something, pretty easy to resupply it. Um, if you're halfway to Mars, it's a little bit harder. You can't really get supply on demand. So you have to uh, do a lot of logistics analysis, predict exactly what you'll need, when, when you'll need it. One of the cool projects we're working on right now with ISS, uh, we're talking to them about uh, using ISS to help refine some of our logistics models. Um, they do really good tracking of what goes up and down, uh, but because they have on-demand uh, they don't have to necessarily predict very far in advance. We'll have to predict out up to two or three years in advance. Um, so one of the things we're doing is talking to them about, let's let's start developing some models to predict what you'll need on ISS, and then we'll look at actuals and see how close we came to that. Um, so So we're using ISS today as a way to help refine some of the tools that we'll need for mars later
0: interesting you're you're almost it's kind of like over planning you know like like you're you're not just resupplying what you need on the space station because as you mentioned it's y- your time constraints aren't as drastic as mars so let's just pretend that we're you know we are have to model what we need what we will need what we're going to run out of for the next two years so iss is the perfect place to practice that
2: we're also using ISS um, as a—we're uh, in discussions with ISS to use uh, returning crew members as a, as a Mars analog. So mm. after six months in microgravity on ISS, physically they'll be at the, about the same condition as a crew that's about to land on Mars. Um, so we've been working with the Human Research Program uh, to develop some experiments where returning ISS crew members would do some simple tasks— nothing that would be dangerous for them, but but just to try to understand what, we, what the crew could be expected to do on Mars. Um, we would obviously try to automate as much as we can, uh, but if the crew needed to go do an emergency EVA to go repair something, for example, the question is how soon after landing would they be able to do it? After having spent six months on ISS, there's an enormous crew of people here on Earth that greets the returning <laughs> crew and... You know, picks them up and carries them where they need to go and, you know, doesn't let them uh, do anything strenuous for the first few days, they won't have that opportunity on Mars. They'll, they, they could potentially be asked to do things um, that they would never be asked to do here on Earth. Uh, so we want to understand what the capabilities will be. Um, are there countermeasures we can use to try to uh, make sure that they're um, in, in good enough physical condition, strong enough, uh, with good enough balance to be able to, to do? Um, not necessarily strenuous things, but things that could be dangerous if you are far away from a doctor. Uh, you lose your balance and fall, for example. And uh, yeah, so we, we, we try to try to think ahead to those sorts of things and use the the available programs that we have in place today, sort of piggyback on those where we can.
0: Interesting. So it's like you're you're trying to you're using crew members returning to the planet. As a way to think about if astronauts were on a very long journey to Mars, and you said, what was it? it's, it's like nine-ish months to get there?
2: Again, it depends on when you, when which opportunity, exactly when you leave, where the planets are with oh, respect okay. to each other, and which propulsion system that you're using.
0: That's an important distinction. Yeah. Um, but just, I mean, regardless, it sounds like it's going to be a relatively long time. About what we're doing now on the space station, give or take. Um, so when you land, I guess what the what the human is going to be able to do, what we could do to try to see, to countermeasures we can put in place to see how we can maybe help them get ready to do something. Another thing that's coming to my mind is technology to maybe support, maybe holding them in place for a little longer. Life support systems and and the necessary provisions so that maybe if. During this recovery phase, they just need to wait it out. Maybe they have that ability, because um, I know. I, I mean, I've I've been out to Kazakhstan. I've I've carried an astronaut, and I know they are just like, I mean, but they get put right to work, right? So they have to do these 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 right. tests that you're saying right now. They have to do these tests to see to test performance. So they're up, they're moving, but they are they're dizzy. They're dizzy, and they're they've had a long journey, and their bodies are adjusting. So. Modeling that is so, important.
2: That's one of the unknowns is, um, so here on Earth, we they don't have to get up and do anything right away. There's a, yeah. a crew there to help them. Um, one of the things we want to know is how soon could they safely get up and do certain tasks hmm. um, without risk. Uh, so so that's that's, that's sort of an exciting it. area of, of research that we're, we're partnering with HRP on, and um, back on the transit question, how long does it take to get there? So sure. uh, one of the things that we're looking at is, is can we uh, minimize either how much propellant it takes to get to Mars and back, or the transit time, or both. Uh, so we're looking at a range of, of new technologies. Um, electric propulsion is an interesting one. So the, the gateway is we'll be using solar electric propulsion uh, those electric thrusters um, are, are of interest. Uh, we sort of see that as the evolutionary path for the, the Mars system. So hmm. Gateway essentially becomes our, our test bed for, for, for that propulsion system. Um, Gateway also, the other thing that Gateway does for us is it's outside Earth's, protective, um, Earth's protection. So, so it'll give us some deep space. Uh, experience with uh, in, in a in a harsher environment than a little bit closer to Earth, um, with the radiation and, and so on. Um, long duration missions that that was one of the challenge because of the dura- the the distance to Mars and back. Um, you're looking at long durations. ISS has already given us the long duration human ex- exposure to spaceflight, so we we're, we have a much better understanding of that than back at the time when Werner von Braun first proposed a Mars mission mm-hmm. uh, ISS has also given us a lot of long-duration equipment experience we understand um, you know the meantime between failure on certain types of, of systems uh, we're looking at regenerative systems uh, trying to be more self-sufficient so so ISS has done a lot for for the Mars uh, concepts um, the new commercial partnerships that the, some of the launch uh, capabilities that we have available now that von Braun didn't have, uh, if we do need to launch a lot of propellant to get to Mars, uh, we have more options now than than we used to have. So that's exciting. Yeah, um, being able to land large payloads on Mars, we're developing uh, and testing uh, several different technologies. Might. My personal favorite is the Hypersonic Inflatable Aerodynamic Decelerator. Oh. The acronym is the HIAD. Huh. Uh, that's a pretty cool system to be able to use the the, uh, the it's a big giant inflatable that gives you enough surface area to help slow down your payload before you, you land on Mars. Hmm. Uh, the other thing Gateway will do for us is uh, I always say that lunar landers coming going from Gateway to the lunar surface will look very similar operationally to Mars landers coming and going to the deep space transport. So uh, Gateway will offer us an opportunity. Uh, Gateway paired with the, the human landing system will offer us a lot of relevant operational experience that will be directly applicable to what we want to do on Mars. On the the living there challenges, um, we already have a lot of experience with with microgravity, which we need for the transit leg of the mission from our shuttle and ISS experience. Uh, but the Artemis program will give us some, uh, some reduced gravity, uh, lunar gravity experience on the surface of the moon that will have some applicability. Uh, for example, spacesuits we will we'll need to develop a planetary suit for the moon, hmm. um, something that you can walk around in, the hip joints, the boots, that We use on ISS are not really appropriate for walking around in a in a dusty environment. So, that that's something that we'll get from the Artemis program. And then um, surface power, we're looking at a couple options. Um, oversize just oversizing the solar arrays, uh, more surface area is one way to go. Uh, another way to go is a compact fission power system. Uh, the our space uh, our our. Technology Mission Directorate is looking at, at some alternative uh, power sources to, to solar that are that are of interest to us. The Moon is cold and dusty, just like Mars will be. So that gives us, uh, especially during the, the lunar night, it gets pretty cold. So Artemis will give us a lot of experience with the extreme environments. And then uh, on the the coming home again, we're looking at we're looking to, to the human landing system, the the lunar ascent element. Uh, May be directly applicable. Getting from the the lunar surface back up to Gateway uh, is not unlike getting from the Mars surface back up to Mars orbit. So, uh, we're looking to that program for some uh, maybe some get-ahead on on a Mars ascent vehicle. Hmm. And then, of course, once we get back to to Earth orbit um, or cis-lunar space, uh, Orion has already solved the problem of of getting the humans back to the ground again. So. That We check that off of our to-do list. We, we just rely on on Orion. and so, so a lot of the challenges have been whittled away or have been at least whittled back enough that they're within reach now for us to, to use for Mars.
0: Yeah, I pulled out a couple of them because you went through um, those, those same three key areas, getting there and living there and then coming back. I was thinking about um, things that we're either we either have or are working on right now, Regenerative light support was one that I pulled out because I know that's an important part of living and working on the space station, which we've been doing for almost 20 years now, um, and developing those technologies, that's just something that we have a lot of data, a lot of experience with, and is going to be needed for, for Mars missions, something that we that we have. but. The one thing I was really looking forward to is all this Artemis stuff that you're talking about. You're talking about all these technologies that are helping us get to the moon, yes, but in a sense, there's a lot of applications and important applications for a Mars mission. Um, That was one thing I I think was, it can't be really understated because we talked about how hard Mars is, but this Artemis as almost a practice for Mars and preparation for Mars and data data gathering for Mars. That's really important.
2: Right now, we're thinking of the moon as our, as our test bed. Yeah. We will, obviously, the cheapest place to test these things is on Earth, and we will test as much as we can on Earth. I'm sure my friends at, at the White Sands Test Facility are excited about, yeah. about doing a lot of hazardous testing out there. All right. Um, so we will test as much as we can on Earth. Um, but at some point, you've got to get some relevant space experience. Uh, there's only so much you can do in microgravity. Hmm. Microgravity helps us test the transit leg, but it doesn't really do much for the planetary piece of it. Uh, the moon gives us that. It gives us operational experience, a lot of materials, reliability experience. Uh, we're pretty excited about, about all of the testing that we can do on the moon.
0: Yeah. Now, your, the, the group you're in and the work that you're doing... Is mainly is it informing? Is it advising? Is it actively thinking and writing down requirements for what you think we'll need for a Mars mission, or what we think we should be working on now to prepare for a Mars mission?
2: We're not quite to the point of writing requirements. Okay. Um, With well, with one potential exception. So we've got the Habitat uh, Broad Area Announcement, the, the BAA effort that's going on. Uh, that was a procurement to look at an in-space habitat, mm. which would uh, potentially have applicability as the deep space transport habitat. So, so that is one specific procurement where um, very high-level requirements have been defined. Uh, we're not quite to the point of defining requirements for many of the other systems yet, mm. um, but we are developing concepts, uh, concepts of operations. Uh, being able to jump into requirements should go pretty quick when we're ready to to pull that trigger. Okay,
0: but you're thinking about at least the elements that you'll need, and we went we went through a lot of them. You just mentioned a habitat. I mean, one of the Main parts of a journey to Mars is the actual journey to Mars is getting there. So there's going to be some form of a vehicle, transportation, technology, whatever, to actually transit from Earth to Mars, from Mars to Earth. So thinking about what we might need to – what that may look like, what we'll need to consider. Because it's a long time. It's going to be a long time. Um, So thinking about those things ahead of time is really important. And and then another part that I I pulled out, besides your three, thinking about the technologies we have now in our testing, thinking about the technologies that are coming up uh, for um, Artemis, another part that I pulled out was, and this is a very important part, the human element, uh, thinking about what, what a person is going to have to deal with. And you already talked about the landing, considering a landing from the International Space Station from low Earth orbit, Having that be a model uh, for what a Mars mission would look like, it sounds like there's a lot of human components for Artemis as well. Correct. Yeah,
2: yeah. Our our team, um, we are so lucky. Uh, Don Pettit has been assigned as our our crew rep. Wow. And he is, he's so awesome. <laughs> if you haven't ever Googled his his uh, ISS. Uh, YouTube videos. He is. They're fun. He is fun to work with. So, (laughs) uh, so Don's been involved with us. Um, Yes, we have been doing a lot of thinking about the human systems. Uh, Most of the, a lot of the Mars focus of the last few years was with the science, with the with the rovers, the the robotic missions, the science missions. Um, The human missions are completely different. Uh, The science missions have taught us a lot about Mars. About the conditions on Mars, what we can expect on Mars, and and uh, that is extremely valuable to help us design for the human systems. But the, you know, the, the Curiosity is just a few watts of power. It doesn't really need very much power. Um, humans are going to need kilowatts of power. So it's uh, once you put the humans in the system and you start trying to uh, run life support systems and. Um, you know, just the level of safety requirements that, that you know, you, you need to be sure you need to have a plan B and a plan C. I always give my friends at, at JPL a hard time because they're robots. Um, they don't need uh, food or water or bathrooms. And the, the human systems, the, the humans will need all of those things. So there's a whole new level of stuff that has to, has to be thought about for the human missions that the robotic missions never really had to worry about. Um, it drives power. Uh, once you have more power, you need more thermal control. Um, once you have more thermal control and more power, that's more structural mass. So these things tend to snowball a little bit. And that's why our systems end up being much bigger than the robotic systems are. Um, people always ask, well, why not just send robots then? Why not just send robots? We, do we really need to send humans? Um, that is a debate that will rage for the ages. <laughs> uh, what the scientists will tell you is that the humans can do in a day what it would take the robots to do a year or more to do. Uh, so, so, yes, there's a compelling reason to send the humans. Uh, the humans can make real-time decisions. Uh, humans can fix things that break. Uh, when poor opportunity got caught in the dust storm and the, and the solar arrays were, were covered, um, there was nobody there to dust them off. Hmm. So unless you've thought through that and planned for that contingency with the ro- robotics, uh, that's the kind of thing that if a if a, a wheel gets stuck somewhere, the humans can get out and, and deal with that, whereas the robots can't. So um, I, I can understand both sides of the argument. I happen to work on the human spaceflight side, so <laughs> I'm a little bit more predisposed to that side. <laughs> sure.
0: <laughs> but uh, – I think maybe you might have a better appreciation than most for maybe living on Earth and what Earth has to offer, and things that maybe people don't consider when they think, why, "Why are we not on Mars right now? Let's go! Let's go to Mars!" You're like, "No, it's it's really hard because there's a lot of things that we're doing right here on Earth that are just we don't even recognize." our conveniences are just, they're, you know, if I was thinking, one thing I was thinking about when you were talking about a journey to Mars and the distances and bringing things with you, I just did a road trip to Florida. It took me 17 hours. And yes, I packed the car full of waters and snacks, but I stopped for coffee, for a bathroom, for, you know, just to take a break because I could, and I could get out of my vehicle and I can kind of get more provisions and I can use other facilities and then I could get back in that vehicle and I can keep driving. But that's not, it's not a luxury for a journey to Mars. I'm sure you have a better appreciation than most of this.
2: So so being from Alaska, I, I I, have a very good appreciation of this. So the reason I'm from Alaska um, is because back in the 50s, the U.S. government was trying to encourage uh, more people to move to Alaska. They were trying to open up a uh, The economy there, and uh, one of the challenges of getting to Alaska was it was really far away, (laughs) and there weren't a lot of gas stations on the way, and nobody could really carry that much gas to get all the way to Alaska. So they offered homestead opportunities to folks who were willing to set up gas stations, and uh, my maternal grandmother moved to Alaska, set up a gas station near near Palmer, and uh, that's why my family was in Alaska. So. For me, it doesn't bother me at all to think about eventually setting up waypoints between here and Mars to refuel vehicles. I know some people are overwhelmed by the sheer difficulty of that. It's hard and it's dangerous, and and it is, but it's probably no more daunting than it was to my grandmother (laughs) moving to Alaska um, with a couple little kids in, in tow. Uh, and setting up a, a gas station out in the, in the wilderness at the time. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's hard, but there are people here on Earth who are up for that challenge.
0: <laughs> you definitely have a better appreciation. It's, it's even in your family. Um, just, just working on this and thinking about Mars and all the challenges that have to be answered and, and thought about before we actually go there but thinking about some of the things that are in the near future for Artemis and some of the answers that we might get, some of the questions that we might continue to, that might continue to come up and that we might have to learn. What are you most excited about for this near future going to the moon and thinking about some of the things that we might be able to answer for a Mars mission there? I spent most of my career
2: working with shuttle and and space station um, and those were really fun programs to work with. We we were, you know, launching humans pretty often, and we were doing lots of interesting things. Um, going to the moon is a whole different set of challenges. It's some of the same challenges as you still you still have to launch people. There's still danger and risk and and the things of all of that. Um, but getting landing on the moon, that's a whole different set of challenges than just going up to a space station. Uh, working on the moon, that's a whole different set of challenges. Um, to me, that's that's the most exciting. It, it, it's the unknown unknowns, the things we don't know about. Um, we learned a lot with Apollo, uh, but those were very short missions. Um, being able to stay a little bit longer on the moon, uh, which is probably what we'll need to be able to do uh, for Mars, Uh just give us a lot of information we'll we'll learn what doesn't work and i think that is almost as valuable as as designing things that you hope work mm-hmm. uh, knowing what doesn't work is is pretty important
0: that's incredible michelle rucker thanks so much for coming on he's we have a podcast today thank you so much Hey, thanks for listening. We have some bonus content for you at the end of the show, so hang tight. First, the credits. This episode was recorded on January 8th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, and Jennifer Hernandez. Thanks again to Michelle Rucker for taking the time to come on the show. Hope you like this topic because there's going to be a lot more This month kicks off monthly episodes all about a Mars mission. We'll call it Mars Monthly. And over the next few months, maybe even a year, we'll dive deep into the various elements we discussed with Michelle today. Last month, NASA released a new podcast, NASA's Curious Universe. Our universe is a wild and wonderful place, and in this podcast, you'll join NASA astronauts, scientists, and engineers on a new adventure each week. Take a listen.
3: Before an astronaut ever sets foot aboard the space station, they have to train somewhere you might not expect. This isn't just any old swimming pool. It's the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, located at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. This special pool contains 6.2 million gallons of water, enough to fit nine Olympic-sized pools inside. It's where astronauts like Nick come to train.
1: So the pool is this gigantic pool. It's 200 feet long, it's 100 feet wide, and it's 40 feet deep. It is enormous. It's still not big enough to fit the entire space station in it, but it fits full-scale, large chunks of the station so that we can practice. And that's our training ground.
3: The pool is where astronauts first get acquainted with the armor that protects them from space their space suit. And that can be its own challenge. First thing, you've got to suit up. It can take about 45 minutes, and the assistance of multiple suit technicians to get the suit on, checking to make sure that every piece is fitted and working properly, from the helmet locking into place to the gloves fitting around every finger
1: have to learn how to use the spacesuit, because it's not like wearing clothes. It's, it's constraining and it limits some of the things you can do. It's fatiguing because of the pressure of having it stiff. And so you have to learn how to, how to use it. And that takes, that takes hours underwater getting to know your spacesuit.
3: Once you have the suit on, and it's been double and triple checked, you can prepare to enter the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. Even though you're not out in space just yet, the pool will simulate what you might feel once you're out there. Why? Because being underwater simulates weightlessness.
1: The Neutral Buoyancy Lab is there to train us because that's one of the places or one of the ways that we can try to simulate being weightless. So that idea of neutral buoyancy.
3: It's called neutral buoyancy because when you're in water and you don't sink, but also you don't float, you're completely neutral. It's like you're hovering in place.
1: And so it feels as though I'm weightless and I can maneuver myself around the outside of the of the space station and have the experience of working in a weightless environment. And so we're constantly trying to to balance out the weight of an object with its buoyancy so that things just float in front of you.
3: Weights and flotation devices are carefully combined to let astronauts feel what it's like to be weightless in space. When an astronaut is training in the pool, their backpack, the primary life support subsystem, is filled with air they can breathe and instruments that monitor their health.
1: You've got to get everything straight because once you go underwater, that's all you've got are the tools you took with you. And you're going to be down there for six hours.
3: That's about the amount of time it takes for a spacewalk in actual space. Once you're in the pool, waterproof instructions are attached to your arm and you rehearse the spacewalk as if you were doing the real thing.
1: All right, Make before we get started on that, if we can just... Yep. Help me guide that out. The
3: whole time, a team of people is watching every movement of your practice spacewalk. They monitor the pressure inside the suit and the temperature. And the test director is making sure that the whole process is going according to plan. Good teamwork there.
0: Exactly.
1: So I need to float a little bit higher on this end. Okay. Okay, so that's good alignment.
3: Trained scuba divers guide you around a replica of the outside of the International Space Station.
1: Yeah, and I can... Looks good here. Yeah, we're aligned down here. Okay. Having this full-size mock-up of the space station underwater allows us to, to essentially memorize where every handrail is, where every handhold is, and if I'm gonna work in a particular location on orbit, I will have seen that and understand that location on the ground.
0: If you like this clip, you can check out the full episode at nasa.gov podcasts. Curious Universe is right at the top. Make sure you subscribe to get the latest. They have a new episode coming out on Monday. Thanks for sticking with us to the end. Give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us how we did. We'll be back with a new episode of Houston. We have a podcast next week.